Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, comments, concerns, hot takes about tennis and other stuff. Uh, sorry for the late post. Normally I do this on Friday. It is Saturday, but things got a little bit hectic yesterday. Before we get started, I've had some questions saying, uh, Gil, how do I participate in the mailbag? So I want to show you that right now. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm showing you the homepage of my channel. And right next to the about button, um, or excuse me, right next to the playlist and the channel, you'll see the community button. If you click on that, you'll see all of my posts. And then, of course, you can comment right there. So without further ado, let's get started. This week's mailbag, episode six, I believe. And we'll start with some of the comments I missed from last week. And uh, Swagat was nice enough to compile those for me in one comment. So the first one, what players do you think will play worse without spectators? And what players do you think will play better? So, of course, uh, this requires a fair bit of speculation on my part. But my my thinking is, look, there's no way that there aren't some players on tour who won't be affected by the fact that there will be no crowd. Because, you know, I think that it plays a role. I think some players draw their energy from the crowd. I think Nick Kyrgios is one of those players. I think Daniil Medvedev. For example, let's, let's take the U.S. Open run last year from Medvedev. He was physically battered from all the tennis he played leading up to the Open. And obviously he was taped up and, and he was having all sorts of physical issues. I really don't think he would have made it all the way through to the final um, if he wasn't drawing a lot of energy from the crowd. Now the crowd was actually rooting against him after he uh, flipped him off um, against, oh, I'm blanking, but after after he flipped off the New York crowd, uh, you know, they were, they were rooting against Daniil Medvedev. And I think he used that, he drew energy from it, and it really uh, put wind in his sails. And that's why he was able to play through the the pain that he was experiencing, because I think he got he got very vindictive. He really wanted to kind of you know give it back to the crowd that was rooting against him. But you know those matches were so energy filled. Then there are players who tend to maybe get a little bit carried away, overly emotional. They get too excited. Uh, they don't channel their intensity in a productive manner. And I think the player that comes to mind on that side of things is Stefano Tsitsipas, who, and, and he said it himself, who could benefit from just staying a little bit more calm on the court, improving his temperament on the court, and trying to, to get himself to not experience the intense highs and the intense lows that he puts himself through a tennis match. When you put yourself through those ups and downs, it is mentally exhausting. And oftentimes, I think Tsitsipas is not playing with uh, with enough comfort. He's almost too intense, and there's too much tension in his body when he's playing. And he he goes he'll go for too much on a forehand, or you know, there's a multitude of problems that could arise. I think uh, when I played when I played uh, Philip Fama. Uh, which was the the latest episode of Monday Match Analysis, if you didn't see it, I thought that I was a little bit too pumped up. 
and and that affected me negatively. So I think Titi Pass is someone who comes to mind as someone who maybe could benefit from perhaps the the calm of no crowd tennis. Um, I don't really have a lean now. Djokovic. I think Djokovic will be fine without a crowd. I I think he. Again, he draws a lot of motivation and energy from within, and he doesn't need that external. Um, Zverev, I think, draws a lot of energy from, from a crowd. But a lot of these players, I'm not really so sure. The players who come to mind is uh, possibly the no-crowd situation helping Tsitsipas and possibly hurting Daniil Medvedev, a... Uh, Nick Kyrgios, who won't be traveling to New York anyway. Perhaps a John Isner tends to take uh, take a lot of energy from the crowd, which is smart. You should. All right. The next one. Do you like the ATP, where there are the same top guys fighting for majors every time? Or do you prefer the WTA, where every major, there's a new champion? This topic came up when I was uh, talking to Steve Flink about the French Open final between Chrissy Everett and uh, Martina Navratilova in 1985. And throughout the 80s in women's tennis, it was really the Chrissy versus Martina show. Obviously, they ended up playing 80 times, oftentimes in the finals. It was pure domination by those two. And now, even in the Serena Williams era, we've seen parity on the women's side. We've seen Serena's rivals emerge on a rotating basis. You know, it can be Justine Ennin for a couple of years and Kim Kleisters for a couple of years. And Sharapova never was able to beat Serena with any consistency. And, uh, you know, now, now I guess you have a couple of years where I suppose Osaka, but I don't really need to go any further than to say WTA has not had consistent elite. Uh, they, it hasn't had a consistent elite tier, right? Halep now uh, more contemporary and Wozniacki in the mid 2010s. So it's just been kind of new player after new face, after new face, after new face. And on the men's side, it's been the opposite with the big three and the big four. And I don't think there's any argument. The, what's happened on the men's side is better for the sport. This is an individual sport. And what you have with an individual sport will be star-driven interest. Star-driven interest. That's what you get in tennis. That's what you get in golf. That's what you get in boxing and mixed martial arts. That's how it is. And it takes time to build a star. And when a star is built up and then knocked down immediately, Jeannie Bouchard, that doesn't help the sport. That hurts the sport. What we have, what we've had in men's tennis is over a decade of getting to know these essential titans of the sport in Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray. And that has without a doubt, that is without a doubt beneficial to the sport of tennis. What's happened on the WTA is not good. What will be good for women's tennis if the next decade is dominated by Coco Goff and Naomi Osaka? That is what women's tennis wants. That is what they need. Not 
the rotation, merry-go-round champion kind of deal. That's not good for, for women's tennis. Was the entire media helping to have a fiasco like the last three or four months where the biggest news stories were Kyrgios fighting with Becker and other players and the sort? My general impression was that the media is covering too many, quote, non-stories, and I can't wait to see live tennis again, even if it's going to be with no crowds. What's your take on this? Here's what you got to understand about the media. And I didn't understand this about the media until I became a part of the media and I got an education in broadcast journalism. I didn't, I didn't understand this. Here's what you got to get. If you are a reporter, your job is not to wait until something happens and then report on it. Believe it or not, that is not your job. Your job is actually to produce a product just like any other business, just like the restaurant business. If your job is to make pizzas, you're making pizzas. No ifs, ands, or buts. Journalism is kind of like that. You need a story. And if there's no story, you better go find a story. I think it's important to understand that. So let's say you are, uh, I don't know, John Wertheim and you write about tennis for Sports Illustrated. And look, I won't speak directly to what John is asked to do, because I don't know exactly, but he has a weekly tennis column. Oh, come to think about it, he does a weekly mailbag. He's not allowed to just be like, I'm not doing it this week because nothing happened or because tennis stopped. And that is true for any local reporter, any sports reporter. You need stories, with the exception of freelancers who can really do whatever they want and they might not be unfortunately they've really suffered throughout this pandemic because their services haven't been needed if you are not a freelancer you are expected to produce content so the observation that you are making that the media is reporting on non-stories that is a totally valid observation it is it is true but there's nothing that can be done about it. It is the media's job to go get a story, to go find a story. You're not allowed to just not produce anything. It is not your job. You're not doing your job if you're producing nothing because tennis stopped. So I think that's the, the best way to answer that. The top comment this week comes from Jared Gonzalez. Hey Gil, what match was the highest level you've seen from each of the big three on each surface? And do you think Federer's neo-backhand season in 2017 would have bested 2019 or 2020 Djokovic at the Australian Open? Hmm. Highest level you've seen from each on, on every surface. I always say, you know, historianism isn't my strength. So I, I, always, find, I always find these questions difficult to answer. I think Federer's 2017 early season form could have beaten Djokovic definitely in 2020, possibly in 2019. That was a, again, that was a mindset that cannot be replicated. Impossible. Can't ever happen again. It must come naturally. Federer was playing with zero pressure. He was so loose in the best possible way. So free-flowing. 
not second guessing any of his decisions, any of his shot selection. He was so creative. He was so daring on the court. And the only way, the only reason he was able to channel that mindset is because he didn't actually have any expectation for himself. And I think what we found in the years following is that it's it's really impossible for someone to do that artificially. That mindset can only come naturally like it did for Roger Federer missing six months out with uh, the knee surgery and having the offseason and being fully prepared to come back and coming in to the Australian Open in 2017 as a 17-seed and not having any expectation and playing lights out. Next one comes from Donut McMuffin. Why doesn't team have any clay masters despite being a solid top three clay quarter for the past few seasons? That's one of those kind of strange things. I'm sure it'll change very, very soon. Hi, Gil. Don't think you answered uh, this last week, so I'll ask it here. What's your thoughts on the general slowness and homogenization of the courts and balls across the ATP over the last 15 years? Do you think this is a big reason as to why the narrative for whenever Federer plays Djokovic or Nadal is that Federer is the riskier player and has to do more to win because there is a perceived lack of solid consistency? Do you think fast court tennis deserves a revival? Something that nobody talks about is how minuscule the grass court season is compared to the clay court season or the hard court season. It oftentimes seems to me that the distribution of events on tour isn't fair to naturally attacking players and seems to skew in favor of players whose primary way of winning is baseline grinding and heavy hitting. Interested in your thoughts. There's two sides to this. I don't think that there's any doubt that tennis as a product has... It's better when there's rallies. That's just my opinion. You can feel free to disagree. I don't come from any position of of authority when I say that. But I think... You know, look, when Pete Sampras played Boris Becker on grass, there was, you know, it's not that it's not that it wasn't entertaining. It was, it would, you know, it, it had its charm about it, but quick points, a lot of points that looked the same, a lot of tie breaks. I believe tennis is a better product now than it was in the nineties when you had, especially when you had. Edberg against Becker and, you know, Sampras and, and, and these guys playing against each other. One thing I miss, on the contrary, I really miss when the baseliner counterpuncher plays the serve volleyer. I really miss McEnroe Borg. I miss Agassi Sampras. That was great. No doubt about it. And, and we don't get that now. So that I miss. But long points are good. Long points are good, generally speaking, for for tennis as a product. In terms of Federer being the riskier player, you make a good point about that. Because what's risky against, let's say, what's risky against Federer on grass? Risky is not doing anything. Risky is playing defensively and hoping Federer misses. That's risky. What's risky on a slow clay court? now risky, might be playing offensive tennis. So you see the definition, see how the definition of risky changes based on what kind of conditions you're playing in, based on the uh, style of opponent you're playing in. And and Joel Drucker made a similar point 
we were talking on the latest episode of three about about our different play styles. And uh, Joel said, look, if I played you, Gil, and Joel is a serve and volley player, and and I'm more of a baseliner, Joel said, if I played you, the risk would be staying back. That would be the risk. And generally, serve and volleying is thought of as you know the, the riskier tactic, the more aggressive tactic, but that really depends. So that's a good point. Comment from Ardok. Hi, Gil. Who is the better grass court player, Djokovic or Nadal? What was the reason that Nadal underperformed at Wimbledon from 2012 to 2017? Got to give the edge to Djokovic. He's a better mover on grass. He is a better returner, which gives uh, which gives a lot of the big servers who do well on grass a lot more trouble. Why did Nadal underperform um, at Wimbledon 2012 to 2017? Mostly it had to do with he, he played big servers, a loss to Dustin Brown, a loss to Lucas Rassal, a loss to, um, what's his name, Gilles Mueller. Um, I'm forgetting the Belgian's name, um, who, who isn't a big server. It's kind of an exception. Health played a role. Some of those matches, he didn't have good knees. And I think it especially bothered him. Uh, in the first couple rounds, the grass, it bounces very low. It's really important to get down, bend your knees. And I think Nadal was playing with discomfort in some of those matches, and it didn't allow him to get down low, uh, and that hurt him. Ultimately, I think Gilles Mueller played a, an incredible match, impeccable, and I don't think Nadal played that poorly in that match. Uh, but for the most part, the return tormented him through those years. Uncle Tony was telling him to to play up closer to the baseline, and I thought that that con was continuously a mistake and that it stripped Nadal of his confidence on his return. It made him very uncomfortable on the return. And I think recently, or, or post-2017, Nadal has just said, look, th this isn't me. I'm better when I have a little bit more time and I move back. I, I just return better that way, and he's done that, and I think... He That has uh, been an improvement. His serve is bigger too. When Rafa won Wimbledon 2008, was it versus a prime Roger? When Roger won the 2011 Roland Garros semifinal, was it versus a prime Novak? And when Novak won the Australian Open 2012, was it versus a prime Rafa? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't see much of an argument that they were outside of their primes there. Uh, how many slams would Sampras have won if he played between 2003 and 2019? Here's the thing with Pete Sampras. Sampras had a very, you know, distinct style about him. Of course, one of the best, really the, the best, him and Federer are the best spot servers in, in, the, in open era history. So he had just this impeccable serve that was even a little bit better than Roger's serve. And he was such a good volleyer, amazing dexterity at the net, great great net coverage and athleticism at the net. So a lot of people don't think about him, of course, as a baseliner, but he had such, he had great movement. He had extremely fluid strokes. He was lacking a bit of consistency, and especially on the backhand side. So a lot of people picked on his backhand um, in baseline rallies. 
an interesting insight on Sampras. And I'm currently uh, reading Steve Flink's biography on Pete Sampras. I'm going to talk to Steve this week about it. Sampras had a two-hander when he was young. He had a really good two-hander. And a lot of people thought he was crazy for switching to the one-hander, but he just wanted a little bit more. Uh, he wanted the ability to transition to the net. Uh, he he liked the versatility with the chip and charge and the extra, the extra reach. It, it made him feel a little bit more athletic, and he liked his transition game a little bit better with the one-hander. I really think that Sampras is one of those players who would have adapted if he grew up on slower surfaces with so with uh, with slower surfaces and no carpet and you know court speed homogenization. I think that Sampras would have developed a very similar game to Roger Federer, and he would have stayed back a lot more. So I think Sampras would have been on equal footing with Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. I really don't think there's any way that you can say that Pete would have been worse than them. I, I, I can't. I don't see any arguments for that. He had everything. There's there's nothing that he didn't really have. Because you can say, okay, he didn't he didn't have a good enough backhand to withstand the modern game. Who's to say he wouldn't have just developed differently and maybe perhaps kept the two-hander and then he would have had this, you know, really solid consistent backhand that served him well in baseline rallies. Here's one from Sunflowers of Inferno. Nadal hasn't taken a set off of Djokovic in hard courts in 7 years. Federer hasn't beaten Djokovic in a slam in eight years. I don't think that them not being in there makes any difference to Novak. If anything, it makes the draw harder for him um, because Team and Medvedev are much tougher opponents and Nadal could have taken those dudes out. Do you agree that the absence of Federer and Nadal makes the draw harder for Djokovic or does it make it easier? It's an interesting point. And, you know, your point about Team goes both ways because... Team being the two seed, Djokovic, it's 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 a it's a sure thing that Djokovic won't have to go through like Team and Nadal Feder. So, taking those guys out of the draw, that's going to make the path easier for everyone, including Djokovic. Hot take from SJ: Nadal is about as good as Djokovic on grass, but has had the misfortune of Wimbledon being a few weeks after the long, grueling clay season. Hmm, hard to argue with that just because of how Nadal has been banged up for quite a few Wimbledons. I'll still say he just isn't as good as Djokovic on grass. Uh, the, the assets aren't there. If you really evaluate the assets on grass, he, he has a worse serve, serve return game than Djokovic. And he just doesn't quite defend as well as Djokovic on grass. Um... You know, he's he's a very good grass court player. He's a better volleyer than Djokovic. I'll give him that. And we've seen him do that really well on grass courts. Do you think it would be good for the game of tennis if the big three continue to dominate for the next two to four years? Is it your perception that the average tennis fan is still loving the big three domination? Or are they getting bored of it? And do you worry there will be a credibility issue for men's tennis if it takes the next gen two to four years to finally break through there? Uh there might always be a public perception that these players would go a bit like you guys are only winning now because the big three couldn't walk anymore. Perhaps this perception would hold true more if it turns out that if it's as uh, if it's that it's as Zverev, Tsitsipas, or Medvedev that ends up dominating post big three and not an FAA. I'll, I'll, I'll um, add Yannick Sinner or Carlos Alcaraz 
who seems to have a better excuse for not breaking through due to his age. If the big three drag out what is happening right now with uh, the slam race, if the, if the big three drag that out a couple years, it's going to be really good for tennis. You can't argue that a final where, you know, every rights holder for a major final gets to say, here it is, Nadal looks to tie Federer with 20 major titles. You can't tell me that's not going to be a match that draws massive, not just diehard interest. Remember what interest is always there. Diehard interest. It's always there. For the most part, people watching my channel will always watch tennis. It doesn't matter. They're going to watch. I don't care if the U.S. Open final uh, is between um, Roberto Bautista Agut and Matteo Berrettini. Most people who watch this channel are going to watch. They're going to watch. Casual interest, it's still going to be drummed up by the big three. And right now, there are a couple players who I think have the potential to become very, very popular. Um, on, on a secondary level, at least. I think I think Zverev, uh, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, FAA, Yannick Sinner... Uh, are all players who have shown the potential to become popular. But they have a ways, a ways to go. And the slam race is going to draw a lot of eyes to tennis. Remember how big, you know, 2009 was, I'd say, with... Uh, with 2009 was, I think, a, a huge year for tennis. And I thought that there was extra buzz generated by Federer trying to pass Sampras. And you're going to get a similar thing here. How does the next gen compare to previous gens? Lost gen, mid-2000s gen, are they better or worse? I, I feel they're better. I think they're more complete. And let me, uh, let me explain why. I recently was, was uh, pondering, again, for an episode of three, I was pondering some of the players who have just been close, but not quite, almost good enough to rival Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray, but they just haven't been quite good enough, and they've come on on the wrong end of things more oftentimes than not. I've always had a theory, movement. Movement is so important. You look at, a, there's a long list of players who just didn't quite have the movement to compete with the big three, big four. And they had, they had the serve. They had the ground strokes. Marit Safin, David Nalbandian, um, Juan Martin Del Potro, Joe Wilfred Sanga, Robin Soderling, Tomas Burdich, uh, Marin Cilic, so many players. So many players just weren't quite mobile. They weren't quite as mobile. They weren't quite, and you know, that that affects the way you make shots. Obviously, they're all more aggressive players, but they didn't have the movement. Try to think of players who did have the movement. They were quick around the court. They had good footwork. They had good court coverage. Um, far less... David Ferrer, Kane Shikori, Leighton Hewitt, Nikolai Davidenko. Less players in that camp. More players in the other camp. What the next gen, I believe, has is, generally speaking, pretty good packages. That's why I was so enthusiastic about FAA. So I felt, here's a guy who's athletic, he can move, and he's got firepower. He's got punch. 
That's why I was, that's why I, I shouldn't say was, that's why I am enthusiastic about Felix. Other things have gone awry in his game, but I'm just telling you, that's, if you remember, that's what I was so enthusiastic about. Tsitsipas, good, good size, good athleticism, good movement, firepower as well. He has the forehand, the serve to back it up. Medvedev, the best mover at six foot six, the best mover over six foot five we've seen. And I, you know, for any of you who took issue with like me saying that Juan Martin Del Potro is in the not mobile enough, he's not. Compare him to Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, Murray, he's not there. Medvedev's a lot closer. He's he's almost there. He's just about there. Um, and he's got the big serve. See, they're packaged. They have the package. Now Zverev, um, not quite the firepower as the folks in the in the first list. Not quite the movement as the folks in the second list. I think he's kind of a tweener. So that's that's uh, that's the deal with him. I didn't even include Stan Wawrinka. Again, just not quite as mobile. He had the firepower. He had the strokes. Milos Raonic, obviously the big server, so it's a little bit different. Didn't have the mobility. See? So I think the next gen, they have the firepower and the mobility packaged. That's why I'm pretty enthusiastic about most of them. Hello, Gil. Love your channel. Many fans are saying that this U.S. Open means less because of the absence of quite a few top players. What is your take? The U.S. Open asterisk debate. I don't think it should have an asterisk. Now, I'm kind of holding out hope. I want to see how it plays out. I'm pretty sure that once we actually see the tournament, once we see it happen, we're going to kind of stop talking about this asterisk thing. I think we're going to see that the level of tennis is really high. I think we're going to see that there are really good, hard-fought matches between top players at the end of it. And I, I don't think that we're going to want to put an asterisk on it. It'll still be a great achievement. Um, and there have been, you know, there have been tournaments where this has happened and there's no asterisk. Here's the end of the day. And, and I don't want to pick on Nadal because I know other players have, have had this. Um, they've had easy draws. They've had, you know, easy title runs. Like I think Federer 2018 Australian Open. I think Nadal 2017 US Open. There have been players who have had really easy paths to a major title. And no one is really going to remember it, guys. No one remembers it. No one, if Nadal ties Federer with 20, no one's saying 19 plus the 2017 US Open. No one is talking about that. So why should we put an asterisk now? We don't put an asterisk when there's a bunch of players injured. In your opinion, what is the highest level of tennis you have seen between two players over the course of a set? My personal opinion is Nadal versus Djokovic. 2011 U.S. Open third set. Would love to hear your thoughts. That's a very good pick. What happened in that match is uh, Djokovic clearly had the edge, won the first two sets, and then Nadal's pure you know, pride took over. And he fought like an animal in that third set. He didn't have enough offense in this match to win it. He wasn't going to win this match, but he really wanted that third set more badly than anything. And he was just, I mean, whew, did he do a lot of running in that set. And the rallies were long and animalistic. And Nadal just refused to lose. Went to dire straits and won that third set in a tiebreak. 
and it, it was it, that that is a great level due to the rally length and the crowd was really getting behind Nadal, which was even upping the the intensity even more. So that's a good pick. Hi, Gil. What player outside the top ten and over the age of twenty do you think has the best chance to raise their game to a new level and win multiple Grand Slams? What would this player have to do to go from good to great? Thanks so much, and I love your show, Sam. The best chance here is still Felix. Still Felix. Now, he's still just, you know, 19, and Felix just needs to put, he needs to get comfortable putting a lot of balls in the court. He needs to learn shot selection. He needs to learn patience. He needs to learn consistency. He needs to stop getting overeager. He needs to stop making his targets so small. He needs to uh, he needs to be more willing to defend. Sometimes I'm sometimes I'm puzzled because he he plays such an offensive game and he's such a great athlete. He has you know tremendous movement. Why doesn't he use it? He can play a safer, consistent, more patient game. He can do it. But he, at the moment, at the present, he just, he chooses not to. The backhand can be a little bit more precise. And that's something that I'm a little bit more concerned about from a technical standpoint is can he, can he control his backhand a little bit better? Sometimes it lands short. Sometimes it lands too close to the middle. Um, I just don't think he, he doesn't have, you know, he, he doesn't have the best placement on his backhand. I've noticed it's, it's pretty heavy quite the heavy shot. So sometimes you can get away with not putting it in the right spot if you hit the ball with a lot of pace, a lot of topspin. And then, of course, the second serve needs to be a whole lot better if Felix wants any chance to to raise his level to a Grand Slam level. But again, he has the tools, and I, I think Shapovalov and Rublev, they, they have a lot of potential, and you go further down the rankings, Demonor. He'll rise up the rankings. Even Hercotch will be a top 10 player at some point, in my opinion. Who else? Who else will get to the top 10? Opelka's rising fast. He'll be top 20 at least. Comment from Yurisco. In what degree do you think ATP players are concerned slash paying attention to their attitude on court and are aware of their presence? I mean, the way they walk where they choose to look at during breaks, how they react when they run to a drop shot and miss it. Hiding your negative emotions is important in order to look stronger, but do you think they mainly focus on the game and it's not really a thing? Or do you think players are constantly aware of their behavior and it is a constant battle to keep calm and remain their posture? Also, do you think it happens often that players are trying to influence their opponent uh, mentally with things like coughing, grunting, shouting, throwing rackets, talking to themselves, celebrating, uh, speeding up the tempo on their own serve or slowing down when retrieving, or are they just minding their own business? I think they're absolutely aware of how they're carrying themselves, that you have to be. If you're down a break and let's say you hold serve to not go down a double break, if you let out a come on, that just tells the player that that you're trying to get this break back still and you haven't given up. And that just puts a little bit of extra pressure. That's good. You should do that. If you're not doing that, you're missing an opportunity. So I don't really think players are always minding their own business. I think they they feel the other player on the other side of the court constantly. There's actually a connection there. 
between both players. And they're always reading each other. At all times, they are reading each other. Some players might want to mind their own business more than others, though. There's definitely a range. All right, that'll do it for this edition of The Mailbag. Remember, this is available on both YouTube and your favorite audio platforms. Follow, subscribe, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It is much appreciated. Uh, Next week, it'll be an interesting schedule. Of course, it's almost time to preview Cincinnati. Really looking forward to that, Um, as well as a discussion with Steve Flink about his book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. So hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time.